Welcome to the Reverse Stick Global Hockey Podcast. This week we catch up with FIH Master Coach Terry Walsh. We talk Hockey Pro League and the two-for-one goal offer. Yes, you're with the Reverse Stick, the Global Hockey Podcast. My name is John Lee and I'm joined at the top of the D having a wild windy shot. Well, my co-host, Matt Allen. Matt, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, John, and uh, it's great to be here. It's been another big week in hockey. All eyes, of course, have been on London and the the Hero Hockey semi-final in the, in the World League there. Um, and we're also starting to see a bit of reaction to FIH's announcements on the Hockey Pro League. And uh, look forward to talking about that as the show goes on. And, of course, we're also featuring part one of our interview with uh, Terry Walsh, hockey legend Terry. We spent quite a deal of time talking to him. Uh, so we'll be featuring him over the next couple of weeks and first up he'll be talking about his young days out in Kalgoorlie and uh, as a youngster running around so we'll find out a bit more from Terry later but first of all it's time for some So as I mentioned at the top of the show there John all eyes have been on the Hero Hockey World League semi-finals uh, for men in London there's been entertainment abounds in the opening games uh, at the time of recording we've seen 32 games played um, 83 goals have hit the back of the net during that time, 48 field goals, 5 penalty stroke conversions and 30 from penalty corners. Argentina's Gonzalo Payet has scored over a third of those corner goals, topping the goal scoring charts at this stage with 11. Uh, the Argentinians along with England, India and Netherlands are looking pretty strong going into the quarterfinals with all but the bottom sides from the group pools advancing through um, to the classification and the finals games. So the top four sides will then make it through to the finals in December in Babanaswar in Odisha State in India. Um, well, that is, of course, if India don't make the top four and uh, the top three sides will go through plus India as the, as the home nation in that competition. Those four sides will then meet the top four sides from the second semi-final series, which is being held in Johannesburg from the 9th of July. Uh, the women's Fintro semi-finals of the Hockey World League, the first round, of course, get underway on the 21st of June in Brussels. And we'll give you lots of news from that and the final wrap from the men's semi-final one in next week's show. Also in some news this week, the FIH has announced uh, broadcast partnerships that they hope will provide a truly global coverage. Uh, that came out on Saturday, I believe. Uh, no, fr- Friday, late Friday, that news broke. And, um, well, it's a good sign for hockey generally that uh, they're moving ahead and, and looking to get the game more globally televised. It is one of the probably big bugbears the sport has is our inability to get onto the broadcast platforms in yeah, a meaningful th- way. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that they've um, said on the, the Q&As on the FIH website, it's about hockey fans being able to locate their game and know where to find it every single time so they're looking at these longer term deals to build some really good relationships with these broadcasters um, my only concerns are is is it going to be a subscription base only um, is it something that's going to cost the hockey fans and is that going to attract uh, people from outside of hockey to actually watch the game well uh, the, the announcement from the FIH uh has uh, opened the way for ESPN to be broadcasting into European countries through the EMEA. I'm not sure. That's obviously some sort of uh, subscription service of some dis- some type. Uh, they're also 
going to be streaming a lot of hockey across the web. In Canada, CBS Sports is going to be streaming more than 65 hours of hockey to, in Canada. Of course, that'll probably be geo-blocked if you happen to be outside of Canada, which is a real pity. Um, Japan TV Tokyo is also committed to showing matches featuring their men's and women's team at the Hockey League, uh, Hockey World League semi-finals coming up. Poland's TVP will be showing women's matches as well from the Hockey World League semi-finals in Joburg. And so there's, there's a lot happening in, on the broadcast side of things, but it does seem to mostly be online streaming. Now, traditionally, sports have needed big free-to-air rights or subscription TV rights to generate the cash needed to run these huge events and these huge competitions. Now, traditional media is in a funny place at the moment. It's in very much a flux that is, you know, being caused by the new digital revolution. And in the future, just about everything. Free-to-air television is probably in a bad place at the moment. It's not quite dead, but it's certainly... You know, treading water and not looking like it's going to keep floating. Well, on a, on a personal level, I think probably 95% of the hockey that I view will be online, whether it be streamed or recorded. Um, and only really at the time of the Olympics will you see anything on, on Main Street TV, certainly where we are. And, uh, I think it's, uh, it's great that we're going to have some opportunities to see more. But like I said before, um, who pays for it? It's going to come of one of three ways. It's either paid for by us, the end user. So that's looking at your subscription models. Um, it's either through advertising or it's by the associations and the, na- you know, the national associations themselves that will pay for it. Now, if it's on advertising, that would be great. Um, my concern, though, is what happens if that advertising drops away, if we're watching on streaming services, every single view, every single click is monitored. So it really, really will need the the help of hockey people to support it because if we don't use it and we don't support viewing the game um, then you know I doubt that it would last very long on that model and we'd, we'd be looking at a, at a user pay model for it. We will be talking a bit more about the upcoming Pro League, Hockey Pro League soon but it's obvious that these are the sorts of models that the FIH is looking at as far as the broadcasting of the, the, the Pro League goes. They haven't announced any of their plans for what the broadcasting will be but they're signing up these companies. It looks like this is the sort of model that we'll be getting our Hockey Pro League from. Now, just as an aside on, on this subject, and it's, it's not really a question that has an answer. It's more of a paradox. But what's better for hockey? Having 100 people at a hockey club, supporting their club across the bar, buying food there, gathering together as a hockey community, sharing stories and doing all that sort of thing, watching a hockey pro league game on one television or is it better for hockey if those 100 people go home and watch that game on 100 individual televisions and obviously the answer is going to be somewhere in the middle but it's a very interesting paradox that the sport will have to adjust to. That's right. Well, is it, is it hockey being broadcast for hockey lovers or is it hockey being broadcast to attract new people to the game and new sponsors to the game? We'll wait and see. But it's it's good that they're very proactive about getting trying to get the hockey world onto the, the global television stage, so to speak. Yeah, and look, it, it can't hurt for the profile of the game. I, uh, my concern is that it, co- it may cost us financially, not necessarily as individuals, but as an association, if this is an experiment that we try and fail, and you know, where, does it, where does it leave us in four years, eight years' time, um, within the, the grand 10-year strategic plan from the FIH? Now, last week, our editorial that we ran on our website, The Reverse Stick, www.thereversestick.com, 
www.sportsradio.net. Uh, we ran an editorial about the two-for-one goal rule that had been introduced into the Indian Hockey League. And on the weekend, or actually it's from the Hindustan Times, this story, is it? Uh, yeah, Hindustan Times from June 13th. So last uh, Tuesday this story came out. Jason McCracken, the CEO of the FIH, was quoted as saying he is uh, personally impressed with the new two-for-one hockey rule, two goals for one, uh, one goal for a, a penalty corner and two goals for a field goal. Now, I must admit, and our, our piece makes it quite plain and clear that we're not impressed, Jason, with the new two-for-one rule. I think it's a basic distortion on the way the game's played. And I think if we go back to those goal-scoring figures you had before... I don't think it's justified. Well, it's just 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 over a third of the goals scored so far in London have come from penalty corners. Um, you did see to great effect in a couple of the games, particularly towards the end of the tournament in this year's round of the Hockey India League, that the uh, the two goals for the field goal certainly came out to good effect, even when teams had penalty corners. It just meant a variation when they let the ball run out of the top of the circle, out of the D, and then a quick injection back in again. And there you go, double bubble. And uh, you, you, we had some teams winning games in that fashion. Now, I did actually have the, the, the comment come up from a, a club mate just from the weekend. They, they had a 2-2 draw and the two goals scored against them were from penalty corners. And they said, oh, you know, surely a field goal should count more. Um, now, you know, that he's pretty new to the game. I must, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I must say that. Yeah, I'm a little bit diehard for it. I think... Um, one, you know, a goal is a goal, and 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 that's it. I don't really think that we need to mess around with it. So please, Jason, please just leave that one alone. You've got plenty on your plate without having to worry about that one. And in fairness to the FIH, over the years they've been pretty good with their rule rule changes, and as far as uh, getting rid of them very quickly when they don't appear to work. I remember the. Uh, just recently, the the last touch rule in the D. Well, that's it. The, the 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 own goal. We actually had oh, somebody terrible. in a game a couple of weeks ago that there was a ball fired in from uh, from outside the halfway line and it clipped the keeper's pads and the the opposition had great fanfare thinking that they just scored a goal and it's like, well, well, settle down, here, boys, come <laughs> on. <laughs> Now it's time we get to our feature interview for this week, and it's with FIH Master Coach Terry Walsh. Terry's had an incredible journey through the hockey world, starting as a young lad, and he's still going today with Malaysia, although I'm not sure how long that is. His contract's due up soon, and I think Terry might be looking just to relax a little bit after, what, 40-odd years in the sport. It's an incredible story. And... um we started talking with Terry about his early days and how he got into the game and, and what his pathway was. So here is Terry Walsh. Well, before I went to Kalgoorlie, I was actually in Applecross in Perth um, and played, started playing uh, there. My dad was a, a hockey player who played. They came out, my mum and dad came out from India back in the 40s. Um, yeah, old 46, I think they came out just uh, as partition happened in India and Pakistan. Yeah, he, he was actually a pretty good hockey player, but my brother and myself played here in Perth and then we went to Kalgoorlie. Uh, dad was a, a, a primary headmaster and uh, we returned to Kalgoorlie as I was born up there. Did the, the circuit with the um, with dad as a, a primary principal. So we, we were, 
uh, ended up in Kalgoorlie and I spent all my high school days in Kalgoorlie so I remember playing on, on, on the grass and on the crook shanks and, and doing all the lining of the game, uh, you know, for the pitches and all the rest of it. So it was, uh, it was an interesting time. We had a, we had a really great development there because we played a lot of different sport, hockey being the primary one for me, but I played a few others and um, just being able to play at another level up against adults fairly often. So that was, uh, that was all good fun. Had a really, uh, really interesting experience, and uh, finally came down to Perth at the end of uh, end of all of that, and um, started playing with YM down here in the in the first division competition of the Premier League or whatever. Changed its name a few times, and uh, that's uh, that's sort of the beginning days. So your your introduction to hockey in Perth, uh, Terry, that was straight away into A grade hockey at YMCA. Yeah, I was. Uh, I came down. They had a relegation match, as I recall, and David Hatt was the uh, captain and leader of what was going on at YM. And um, the guys there at that stage, uh, I remember Brian Brian Glencross being around. And uh, yeah, I came down for a relegation match, I think in '71, and then um, I managed to get through. And then '72, I, I went down to Perth and we played, and uh, we ended up doing pretty well that year. In actual fact, with YM. Terry, had you been noticed as a junior in Kalgoorlie or was it not until you got to Perth people sort of started looking at you as a player with some sort of potential? I was selected in the in the under-16 state team uh, from Kalgoorlie. I went away with that team uh, in, she was 1968, I think. So um, I, was, uh, I was involved at, at that level, at junior level, and uh, I'd been sort of touted I guess as, as, a, as a possible option going forward so that's sort of the initial piece of it and then I, I was a pretty quick athlete and all of those sort of things which always helps when you're playing sport and um, yeah I was lucky I, I was able to you know get a foot in the door as it were with pretty much from a selection point of view and then uh, one thing led to another and uh, you know very quickly after that we went went into senior hockey so yeah the answer was I I guess I went straight into the senior environment when I came from from Kalgoorlie to Perth so to, to ready you to to uh, step up to that kind of level at, at a young age were there any uh, particular coaches that stood out from from your time earlier on well we we played in the adult competition in Kalgoorlie so I was uh, the difference I guess was the refinement <laughs> and the quality um but there were some good players, you know. Speedy Rook had played up there earlier on, and uh, there was a bunch of guys who played a lot of hockey up there. Barry Patterson and Co. Uh, Terry O'Meara. There were there were really a, a lot of people who were around, and we garnered a whole lot of uh, younger guys in the schools and the, and, and the clubs to, to play. We didn't have a lot of teams there. We only had four or five teams, but uh, it was a pretty pretty full on competition. And of course, we also played in, in the junior competition as well. Um, so the level was well short, I guess, of, of what the uh, the Perth First Division level was. Um, but I was able to able to hold my own, probably because of uh, my athleticism more than anything else. And that was Terry Walsh, FIH Master Coach. We'll have more from Terry a little bit later on in the show, and we'll also be featuring Terry on the next couple of weeks. It was an interview that ended up being an hour and 17 minutes long. We will be posting the entire interview on the net when we finish playing 
our little edited excerpts to you over the next couple of weeks, and it is a fascinating discussion. He is an extremely interesting man when it comes to the sport of hockey, and there's not much he hasn't seen or done. Oh, look, he, he, he was very generous with his time. It was a great chat, and, uh, yeah, we could have gone on for another two or three hours, to be fair, but uh, we've got other things to do. And that uh, that those early years, I think... If, People realise that Kalgoorlie back in the late 1960s, early 1970s, it's a mining town, and in those days it was all underground mining. And some fairly hard characters in that ty- in that part of the world. I especially liked his uh, his reference to Spitty Rourke. I'm not not going to ask how he Spitty got his <laughs> his nickname, but sounds like a bit of a character. Yeah, well, I think he, he he mentioned in the interview there the the mix of players that you get in smaller towns and smaller clubs, and you, you might be bled as a player as a 12, 13 year old, and you're playing with guys towards the end of their careers in their 40s and 50s. And uh, a lot personally, when I played the game as a young man, uh, there's a lot of older guys that I played with, and I'd consider them lifelong friends. You know, certainly one of the great things we get from the game. Oh, absolutely, and um, I'm sure Terry still holds a lot of those friendships dear to him. It's uh, and Kalgoorlie was a fairly rough town back in those days. You got bruised going down the local chess club for a game, so uh, <laughs> he, he certainly would have learnt the fine art of the stick check. Now, moving on, Matt, we said last week we'd be talking about the new Hockey Pro League. It has been announced by the FIH. The Pro League will be going ahead in 2019, from January 2019. And according to the FIH, they're going to generate $150 million. Well, we're going to have a lot to talk about this over the coming weeks, I'm sure, and months and years. Um, we're starting to see a little bit of fallout already from some of the nations that have missed out within the bidding process to be part of those nine sides that will be part of the four-year cycle from 2019. Um, I think it's a lot of hard luck for a lot of those guys that have missed out um, and obviously a lot of work for them to do if they want to be part of the next round. It's interesting as to why teams have been selected and what the criteria is for selection. Um, I know the the Irish have missed out with one of the main reasons being that they didn't have any facilities that are up to scratch to to host the the games and the the infrastructure within those stadiums. Um, so they're a little bit upset about that at the moment. I wonder how we're going to go elsewhere. Um, as we, we mentioned last week, Pakistan are set to be playing their home games in Scotland. I believe the Irish also considered that but thought it was going to be too much of a cost to, to make that happen as their home venue. Well, if it's too much of a cost for Ireland to do it and it's, you know, it's a short ferry ride across the Irish Sea there, then you know, what's the cost going to be to somebody like Pakistan to be set up there? Well, there, there are, that's one of the key points is that the travel is going to be huge. Now, the Hindustan Times has reported that the FIH will not give any funds to participating nations and that's part of the story that reads FIH thinks they can make $150 million out of it. Now, I'm not sure where the FIH thinks the money is going to come from. Uh, it's going to cost a lot and a lot of money to get this going and to get it up and running. I think they can take a big leaf out of what the Australian Football League has done here with their expansion of their clubs. They've put two new clubs in areas that had nothing to do with their game whatsoever and they've ploughed $200 million into each of those clubs. They've built stadiums for them so that these clubs can be successful in the longer run. Now, if the FIH just thinks that these hockey nations are going to bear the cost while they rake in $150 million, I think they've got the 
got the wrong end of the stick. Well, the question is, is yes, $150 million, and it would be great to know where they're going to generate it from, but where does it go? What's, what's the $150 million? What are we aiming to, to do with that money? Is it going to be pumped back into grassroots programs? Is it going to be something that's going to be available for maybe those clubs that have missed out on the Hockey Pro League and to try and strengthen their associations and national programs? Um, yeah, I really don't know where it's going and uh, why would it all go directly to the FIH? You, you, to win the tournament, you'll be crowned the Hockey Pro League champions. Um, I'm assuming there's no pay, there's no prize money that's going to go to those champions, which kind of begs the question, why are we using the moniker Pro within there? That's a good point. Uh, I would also say that this uh, Pro League is tied in with the what will be the decline of hockey at the Olympics, the future of hockey at the Olympics, from everything I'm hearing from different sources from within the IOC and from within hockey, is that there will not be hockey 11 aside as we know it at the Olympics by 2024. Well, we know it's a competitive process to get your sport into the Olympics and to keep your sport in there. They're constantly looking to refresh. So as a sport, we're constantly looking to put new proposals, new ideas, new formats to, to make sure that hockey stays at the top table at the Olympic Games. We saw in the Nanjing Youth Olympics, uh, hockey reduced to a five-a-side uh, format there. Now, maybe for smaller nations, this is a great thing. We've seen in, uh, in rugby, uh, Rugby Sevens has been a great format for Pacific nations, for Fiji, for Samoa, where they can get the quality of players up to fill those seven-a-side sides. Um, maybe that's the thinking with regard to hockey. But I'm a purist, and just like I like one goal for one goal, um, I like 11-a-side hockey. I know down in Perth, uh, here in Australia, we had the, the nine super series with wider goals and uh, more expansive open play happening. I believe Rick Charlesworth thinks seven-a-side is the way forward for the game. Um, and, of course, you know, we can fit more pitches onto a turf if it was all seven-a-side, uh, but I just, it just doesn't quite feel right to me. No, it doesn't quite feel right, I must admit. Uh, but maybe, I mean, the Olympic movement, is the Olympics want hockey to not have 11 aside. They want to squeeze us down to the smallest that we can possibly be, and it's inevitable that the Olympic Games gold medal will lose its luster. It has been the number one tournament for hockey nations since 1924 or 1928, you know, and that's the one every team wants. Now, that's going to change, and I think what this Pro League is is a way that they can tra- uh, FIH can transfer the kudos that you get for winning an Olympic gold medal over to somewhere else at an international level because the kudos will no longer exist from winning a gold medal in hockey at that level, at that that style, you know, seven aside or whatever it is. Yeah, well, I, I hear that, but and kudos it may be, but we're only offering that opportunity to nine teams in a four-year cycle. Um, which is totally against the opportunities that that are displayed with the Olympic movement and sport for all. And, you know, we get behind Eddie the Eagle in the skiing and Eddie the Eel in the pool and whoever else it might be. And that's really seen as a, as a symbol of the game. Yeah, no, you're right. Look, I've got three basic areas of concern. I think it's great the FIH is trying to go ahead and do something 
but I do have three areas of concern. One of them is what you've just mentioned, the promotion relegation idea. At this stage, there's no promotion, no relegation. The FIH has said that, you know, after a couple of years, they'll look at it and, you know, there's, there might be an opportunity for teams to be changing and whatnot. But there's, it's creating an elitist system within hockey when you, when you shut out most of the hockey world and only say, well, only these nine are good enough. You guys will, will play you down here, but these are the, I think you've got to be far more inclusive than that at an international level. Number two, pay disparity between players. If all of these players are paying in the same league, they'll want the same paying conditions. You won't be able to have Indian players getting two and a half grand like they did in the Indian Hockey League and some guy from the Netherlands getting 70 grand. It's not going to be able to work that way and they're going to have to come to an agreement with the players about what's fair remuneration across the board for all players. Because if it doesn't happen, the players will very soon be talking to each other and it will become apparent that some will not be happy and they will take action. And the third point that I would like to make about it is it seems to be that across the world, or as large as hockey may be, the second largest team sport in the globe, it's not the most popular sport in any country. Now, most hockey, league, hockey associations are supported by their governments. So essentially what the FIH is asking is the governments of these countries to support these teams so that they can make $150 million. Now, I'm not sure how many governments are going to like that idea over a longer term. Funding uh, isn't too easy to come by, as we know. Uh, I'm thinking the UK, the system there, a lot of the sports and the arts are funded by their lottery system. Uh, in Australia, it's uh, direct from the from the government. Um, across most of the nations across the world, like you say, there's there's government funding that goes in there. It's uh, it's going to be a real tough one. To it's a tough sell to when when everybody's losing funding or getting fr- funding frozen. To, for them to see the money going this way and they're not being a, a direct benefit or a check coming back to the country. Absolutely. Now, there's plenty we could talk about. We don't really have enough time to get through everything today, but we'd love to hear what you think about the proposed... Well, it's not proposed. It's going to go ahead, the <laughs> Hockey Pro League. Uh, you can leave comments uh, on our website, www.thereversetick.net. Or on the socials at facebook.com forward slash the reverse stick and twitter.com forward slash the reverse stick. Yeah, we'd love to hear what you think, especially different perspectives from different countries as well, because we have one perspective here in our country. There's going to be issues that our national teams face that national teams from other countries won't have to face, but conversely, they'll have problems that we won't have. And We'll talk about these issues as they come up more during the next few weeks. And we also have been on to the FIH. We've sent a few emails and asked for, uh, for some comment from them. Obviously, it's a very busy time for them at the moment, but I'm sure we'll be able to get someone on and uh, have a chat about you know, our thoughts and thoughts of other people and exactly what the FIH's plans are. But now it's time to turn our attention to part two of our interview with FIH Master Coach Terry Walsh. And this time we're taking a bit of a close look at Terry's rise into the Australian system and what it was like as a player way back in the day. Terry, looking back now, do you see that particular period of time in Perth specifically as one of the great, almost like a little mini dynasty, the players that were coming out of Perth and Western Australia at that time were, were dominating and it, in many ways have continued to dominate hockey in their post-player careers? Well, it was, it was an interesting one because, yeah, the, the, there was a lot of good players at that point in time in WA and my time 
with with one of them, David Bell. We played under under 11s and under 13s at Applecross Primary School, <laughs> not Applecross Primary, but the Applecross Hockey Club, um, which uh, which was we we never knew what was in front of us down the track, but uh, we uh, we ended up. I ended up going away in the Kalgoorlie and then coming back and David was of course uh, Dibsy was very big in cricket as well and um, he ended up sort of moving in towards hockey and uh, was obviously one of the best right halves we ever had in the Australian side so we uh, we had a lot of players who were around when we had a, we had a national team competition a huge number of national players at that point like Pooley and, and, and Charlie and Hazel and and uh, there were just a, a bunch of them, too many to you know to, to go through in name. Um, yeah, they, they ended up in the or were in the Australian side either previously or, or, or beyond. But the the guys who I remember in my playing days, early playing days in in, in YMCA were uh, Donny Smart. Donny Smart's the the best individual coach I've ever had. He was just fantastic. He uh, was a great guy and a really nice person and a fantastic individual coach. Um, we, had, we spent a lot, a lot of time together. Bag, Brian Glencross, um, was down there as well. He, he obviously had a whole lot to provide and he was a, he was a, you know, a really good guy to, to follow through. David Hatt was, um, was another, another player and quite frankly is the best captain I ever played under. He was uh, really, really an outstanding um, mover of men, if you like. He could really uh, manipulate people very effectively in a timely fashion. So, yeah, I, I was really lucky with the people that I started with in, uh, in, in YMCA. That gave me a huge benefit. And then I had the, you know, the Craig and the Grant Boyces and, uh, and, and, and Co, who I, I basically grew up with in that era, Terry Lease and Co. Um, so, yeah, um, we, we did have a... a a really good group of players, both in the club environment and then in the state environment, and through into the national environment. We uh, were a bunch of young guys who didn't know where we were going. I don't think in 19, when I first started my Olympic program in '76, we were just a, we were a very young group. Just looking at your own career, you went played uh, for the senior state team in 1974. You made your debut, and a year later, you find yourself at a World Cup playing. For, for Australia in the senior team, did that seem like a natural progression to you, or was it a bit of a shock? Bit of a shock. I mean, that that was pretty quick. I think um, normally you would expect to, to take a bit longer to go through the system, but I guess it was more of an indication that it was time for a change with the, with the Australian group, and the Australian group were pretty successful. Um, yeah, look, I, I think it was a bit a bit beyond the norm. I I don't think people really go through that process very often but it's quite amazing when you when you do get an opportunity to do it because you just move from one environment of of high level and you go into another and uh, I was lucky I was one of the lucky ones who was able to you know still stand on my feet at the next level and 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 so often in sport you see this happen where people go to another level and there's a there's a ceiling that they have um in their playing levels and uh sometimes it's sort of First division versus second division. Sometimes it's first division versus state. Sometimes it's state versus national and international sort of levels. They're all they're all uh, different, and it's a mixture of just ability. But quite often it's not just the playing ability. Usually it's you know to do with the the mental the mental makeup of the of, of the player. I think. 
those early days yeah. in Kalgoorlie perhaps help you in that mental side of not being pushed around? Yeah, probably. I mean, uh, I, I remember we did a huge and a very expensive uh, national um, survey on on what the best athletes had in their background and, and two of the major things that came out of that very expensive AIS survey a long time back, would have been in the 80s, was uh, was talking about um, kids who played in the country environment and played multiple sports. Now that sounds very trite, really, when you, but when you, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of things that go along with that. And our history in WA hockey, we had a lot of WA country boys who were playing, um, in, uh, in the high level hockey, relatively. You know, people were, people came out of the country environments in, in a relatively large number. So, um, yeah, I think it does have a bit to do with it, to be quite honest. Just back to those early days, 1975. You you've gone into the international program. What what was the setup like then? How often did the the players get together? Uh, you know, what, what what were the routines? Well, the routines were sort of non-routines, to be quite honest. You you just played in in your club environment in Perth, uh, as it were, and then if you're in the national team, you were lucky to be selected from the national championships. And you waited for the results of that at the end of those. Um, uh, if you were lucky enough to be in the team, then you might meet the rest of the guys going to a tournament in Singapore and just go across to the tournament. Um, and that was it, really. And if you did that two or three times a year, that was uh, that was a, a reasonable amount. Now, the, the things that changed, of course, is the frequency of events. So you played on a more regular basis as you went through in the last 30 years. And so guys who played a hundred caps um, back in the in the sixties, well, hardly any of them did because there just weren't enough games um, for them to play. There only a handful of games a year. So you had people like Julian Pierce, who I regarded as probably the best hockey player I've, I've seen come out of Australia. Um, he's uh, he just wasn't able to play too many games because he had a, a career that he had to look after, and then had to match it in with the very very meagre number of tournaments that people played at, at that time. Um, so the guys who played 40 and 50 games in that era, uh, compared with guys who played 300 games in today's era plus, um, it's pretty hard to get your head around all of that, plus uh, the combination of, of hockey now becoming a semi-professionalised sport, if you like. You're listening to The Reverse Stick, the global hockey podcast. And a great fella, Terry. You can hear more of Terry on the website. We'll have the full extended version of that section of the interview, and in the coming weeks we'll have more from Terry as well. We spent, as I mentioned, over an hour talking to him, and there's plenty of stories to come in the next couple of weeks. Now, time for a bit of this, Matt. And we did, in fact, have some feedback this week, although I am very disappointed to have received this little particular piece of feedback. Young uh, young gentleman from the Emerald Isle by the name of Johnny D sent me a little message or sent us a little message saying he didn't like the music. Now, John, I'm sorry. I, I must admit, a little bit of offence there because I spent minutes coming up with that theme music. <laughs> And uh, we did make some changes this week, though. You might have noticed a couple of little changes there with the music, so hopefully that will partly satisfy your ears. 
And so if you've got any feedback for us, whether it be on the music or some of the things we've talked about today, then please do get onto us on the socials, facebook.com forward slash the reverse stick and twitter.com forward slash the reverse stick or on our website, www.thereversestick.net. And uh, we'll have plenty more hockey for you again next week. Check out the extended interview on the website. Matt, it's been a pleasure again. Did you have a win on the weekend? We had a win, 7-0, top of of the ladder. Oh, well done. Uh, From myself, John Lee, and from my co-host, Matt Allen, thanks for your company. We'll speak to you again soon.